This is the official HITS training and consulting podcast. We are America's law enforcement canine training resource. We're raising the training bar for police dogs everywhere by discussing the intricate details of the training techniques used by the experts. HITS Radio is merging the training world with the real world. You've been there. We've been there, too. Welcome to HITS Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Meyer. I'm back again today with one of my uh, HITS instructors that we're having. Uh, HITS 2022 is going to be in Orlando. And we have an instructor this year that we haven't had teach for us before. We have Rick Ashenbrenner. He's a Napwata master trainer, and he's been around for quite a while, a uh, long time teaching uh, different uh, subjects and training dogs, and he's had a long uh, kind of varied police career. So with that, uh, I'll let Rick introduce himself. So uh, how are you doing today, Rick? I'm doing fine, Jeff. Just sitting there watching it pour down rain here in southern Indiana. There you go. I'm sure uh, it's a little muggy there, too. It's been awful hot. We've been yeah. in the mid-90s for most of the last couple of weeks. Yeah. So, Rick, for the listeners that I have that aren't familiar with you, can you kind of go over your, your police career and your dog, your dog handling and training career also and kind of talk about uh, where you came from and what you're doing right now? Yes, sir. Uh, well, I started back in law enforcement in 1979. Uh, with the Jacksonville Police Department. Got my first dog and became a handler in 1982. Carried a dog for approximately 22 years uh, for the police department. Spent the last 10 years as a shift commander major and uh, the uh, canine commander. Had multiple dogs over that period of time, dual purpose, single purpose. Got involved with Napwata in 1982 when I got my first dog. That's when I did my very first certification. I'm a lifetime member now. I've been in Napwata since 1982. 1995, I became a master trainer, you know, who can certify dogs to our national standard. Okay. Uh, the North American Police Work Dog Association, or Napwata, as we will probably be talking about, has been around since 1977. We're one of the oldest associations out there. So I've been involved with them since 82, lifetime member, nine years past president. And in between... My uh, police career, I had owned several businesses training law enforcement dogs and civilian dogs. I retired in 2009 after 30 years in law enforcement. Then I started contracting, went to work with the Department of State. I worked in several contracts in Afghanistan for a contracting company. Then I worked for the Department of State in the country of Jordan for almost three years working with the military and the law enforcement dogs there. Uh, right now, it's, I've been doing this for about 43 years, continuous yeah. in 79. I'm still going. I'm still training handler courses, going around the country, doing conferences, instructing, and certifying dogs for Napwater. I think I've certified probably 5,000 dogs or more since I became a master trainer. And definitely uh, appreciate the opportunity to come this year and speak at HITS. I've never uh, been at HITS. I've been to a lot of other conferences. already been at two this year prior to this uh been looking forward to the hits and looks like y'all are going to have a monstrous crowd yeah it should be we got well over a thousand handlers coming so it's going to be it should be a good time so i'll say right here if uh, anybody's listening and you haven't registered we still have room we always have room we pick gigantic hotels to make sure that uh, we can accommodate anybody so if you're listening to this today and this is what triggers you to decide to come to hits Go on the webpage. We can still sign you up. The rooms are still available as of uh, we're, we're recording this in the middle of July. We have some rooms available. But whenever you listen to this, uh, check, and you can probably still get hotel rooms at our hotel. Like I said, it's a it's a big hotel, 
and we're gonna have a big crowd so we should be able to accommodate anybody who wants to come so i want to touch base on a couple of things on your your background um, one of them is just for the listeners who are not familiar with napwata um, one of the things i'm not a napwata trainer but i've been around napwata you know through my business and when i had a magazine and stuff and I know it's it's more of an East Coast organization, it seems to be, or mid, Midwest to East Coast. So for people who are listening that aren't super familiar with NAPWADA, I think one of the things that, that I like about NAPWADA is it's extremely structured. So uh, to be a, a master trainer, you have to have a certain number of hours and stuff. So just kind of, I guess what I'd like to do is just you know, tell, me, tell me what it took to become a master trainer because... A lot of organizations, um, I think, you know, if you've been a handler for three or four years, they'll, they'll do a quick thing and then you're a trainer or a title, you know, some type of title. But that's not the case with NAPWADA. So what was the, the process there? Okay. If, once you join NAPWADA and become a member, if you have some ambitions to go further and become a trainer, which is the first step and then become a master trainer, first thing you do is after you join, you have to get with the accreditation chairperson. You draw a packet. So you would draw a trainer packet takes you approximately three years to get the number of hours you have to have. You have to have a sponsor, a recommending master trainer who's already a current master trainer to recommend you. You have to have so many hours with him, depending on what discipline uh, you want to you know, go for, whether it's the detection or whether it's patrol, yeah. etc. But you have to have a certain amount of hours with that sponsor. On top of that, you have to have critique hours from two different master trainers. The critiquing you is you're out training venue it takes three years before you can even test for a trainer what you have to do is you draw in the packet you have your sponsor you have your sponsor hours and you have your critique hours you have to have your resume of the of the things you've done and the years you've had and, and that and that stuff and then on top of that you have to turn that packet in and then the accreditation chairperson has to look and check all the boxes and make sure you've got everything in order once he's established that you've got everything that you need in your packet, then they give you a letter telling you to appear at either the summer national workshop at our board meeting, or you'll be taking a test in an oral interview or a fall board meeting. Either one, you have to take a written test for the discipline you're going for. Once you take your test, you have to score an 80% or higher, or you can't even go in front of the oral board. So if you score lower than that, they tell you, hey, you have to do some more education because sure. you didn't score high up, come back and you know, a year later. Sure. Well, or if you do get to 80, then you go in front of the oil board. The oil board consists of five different master trainers, one being the accreditation chairperson. So you're sitting there in front of five different master trainers from all areas of the, of the United States with various uh, uh, lengths of experience. They'll ask you questions on the test you might have missed and might have you, you know, elaborate a little bit deeper on it. If you pass that, the accreditation board then says, okay, you passed hours, then we make the recommendation to the executive board who has to approve it. Okay. If you are approved and anointed as a trainer, then you start the process over going for master training. Again, you have to have critique hours, and it takes you another probably about three years just to get the number of hours, everything you need to have. You turn another packet back in, and then they okay it. you got to go back and take another test, another 80% or higher just to go to the oil go to the oil board, yeah. pass that, and then you're anointed as a master trainer. So if you do everything right and you can do it as quickly as possible, minimum amount of time it will take you to become a master trainer with NAPWAT is six uh, six years. Okay. 
So it's, that's why I wanted to kind of go over that because it's uh, if you're not familiar with NAPWADA, it's a very structured program and um, a lot of good things with NAPWADA. So uh, to tell people if they're listening, you know, go to, is it NAPWADA.org? Is that? Uh, NAPWADA.com. N-A-P-W-D-A.com. North American Police Work Dog Association. Uh, so go to NAPWADA.com and check it out. Sure. It's, it's always good to, to look at other organizations. One of the things I see traveling all over the country, probably like you do, is I think... Uh, sometimes we tend to get a little insular about which organization we're with. And I could tell you I have vast experience with all of them and pretty much every organization that I've seen has value in some way or another. So I just always encourage people to, to go look at all the different organizations, see what they offer. Maybe it's something we want to get involved in, at least read their standards and kind of see, see how your standards yes, are, sir. you know. Yeah, we've got over 3,000 members currently from around the world and you know, we have a, a lot of good topics and we have great workshops. We have great sponsors. So, yeah, have to check it out. They Absolutely. like it, join, but they need to make sure they uh, they do certify through some type of nationally recognized association. Absolutely. And then I wanted to talk on your background. I just wanted to hit, uh, when you were contracting, you mentioned uh, you're overseas. So were you training the dogs that were going over to Afghanistan or were you in the country also training the dogs? Uh, both. With one contract I was on, I, I was in charge of, uh, training the explosive detection dogs. I was actually the, the lead trainer and in charge of the explosives and the d- imprinting the detection work. Then I went over and worked in the field with the dogs that we had sent over to maintain the proficiency level. So that was one of the contracts. Another one I went over, uh, trained the, basically mentored the handlers, their trainers, to give them the perspective of trying to get them equal to the Western standards that we we strive yeah. for, yeah. trying to get them more in line with that. So I spent almost three years in that country, working hand in hand with the the government, their military, and also and their uh, police departments, and on their explosive detection dogs. And I worked all the border entry checkpoints, and we made sure they were up to par and gave them pointers. And then we continued training their handlers and trainers. I've been back now about two years, I guess, give or take. And I've talked to a lot of guys who've who've done kind of similar type jobs and and. Uh, as a bomb dog handler myself, you know I've never been overseas, but I think uh, from what I've been told by you know some of my friends who have done it, and I'm sure you know you have your experiences, that really ratchets it up a notch because you know luckily here in the U.S. we don't find a lot of bombs. If if we did, I probably wouldn't be a bomb dog handler because I don't like <laughs> bombs. But but I know over there you guys are you know you're you're, you're the dogs are out working and saving lives and stuff. So. Did was there anything that that you looked at when you were out there in the middle of a you know a, a true war zone that you thought you know here's something that we do in the U.S. that doesn't make as much sense you know I want to change things because of of real life everyday experiences that you had over there. Well, you know, you know, one thing over there when, when we're training the handlers and the handlers are going out and they got the boots on the ground. Of course, yeah. I wasn't out with boots on the ground. Now, when I was in Jordan, I was out and about everywhere. And I was at the checkpoints, and I was watching them work the dogs. But when I was in Afghanistan, of course, I, I was inside the war, not outside the war, but I always talked to the guys that were out. Sure. But, uh, you know, they're – I mean, you were, I guess in the States, you get so complacent, and you being a, an explosive dog handler, you can get very complacent because you go day in and yeah. day out, week in, week out. You don't ever find anything. It's not like narcotics where you're you're hoping yeah. to find the big loads and you're finding stuff quite often. Well, like you say, you can go almost your career and as an explosive dog handler, never get a positive alert. But over there, you know, they find so much. They, you know, those handlers take everything very seriously yeah. because you know they understand the threat level over there is so much higher. Yeah. And they're always on warning, and everything they do, there's always that very 
great potential that something could be there. So, you know, they're they're definitely on their toe. They don't get complacent really. And that's when they I see, you know, stateside training that, you know, we can joke and joke around a lot, but when you get out to do the actual search, you you know, you gotta take this stuff exactly. seriously because you never know the time and place. You know, it's not when, it's gonna happen. Yep. You just don't know when. But over there, you know, they looked at that every day. So that was one thing I looked at. I could see the difference is that over here in the state, people get complacent because they don't see anything. They don't think it'll ever happen where they're at. Over there, it's like, you know, no matter where I go, yeah, it's 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 going to happen so sooner or later. I just got to make sure it doesn't happen on my watch or I yeah. find it first. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I just think it's a, it's a great experience that I hope, again, I hope people are listening. You know, if you know people who have done some of the contracting overseas, and you're a, dog, a bomb dog handler, you know, reach out to them because uh, you know, that's drinking water through a fire hose over there compared to, you know, the pace of, of stuff we do here as bomb dog handlers. So right. I think it's a it's probably a lot of lessons learned. And like you said, it's going to happen here and they test their, you know, evil intentions over there a lot before they bring it here. So it's going to happen there. So if it's happened over there, you know, maybe we should understand how they did it and, and start thinking of ways to, to try to thwart their efforts. So yes, sir. Moving on to uh, your class this year, um, we, we you're teaching a class for the first time. So let's talk about that, uh, the title of the class, and then kind of uh, where'd the class come from, and then we'll talk about some of the stuff that, that you're going to teach in the class. Well, the class that I'll be teaching is the environmental factors and how it affects target odor. And that class came from, obviously, you have a, t- a ton of experience. We kind of went over that. So we talked before the show that you just saw some some different things that were common as you travel around, and that's where this class kind of started. So uh, kind of walk me through that, how the class started. Uh, like you and I talked to just prior to coming on the air is myself and Paul Bunker, own Sharon Canine. Him and I worked together at a contracting company up on the East Coast about 10, 12 years ago, and we worked together for several years. And as we were training dogs and training and instructing handlers and doing conferences, one thing that we both came to a, an agreement on that we thought was missing in the in the canine world was education that a lot of the handlers that were coming up you know whether you were a narcotic dog handler an explosive dog handler you know whatever discipline you were in but you know they weren't getting a lot of education you know there was a lot sure. of these courses you know these vendor courses that are two weeks five weeks eight yep. weeks but you know they're getting dogs out and one of the main things that looks like most of the vendors are trying to do for any handler and you can see why they would do it is get as many repetitions with a dog and together they, they want repetition and which makes total sense but then on the other f- flip side of that is they're not getting a lot of education as what you know the best way to actually deploy their dog in operational environments sure so you know paul and i talked about this and one day we just decided well let's put a class together let's put a course together so we can go out and teach it and kind of touch on different aspects of it and try to educate handlers so at least when they they come out of this course you know, hopefully, you know, they'll have a better idea of, of how to deploy your dog. Because what we came up with, you know, to enable your canine to detect the target odor, you know, for, for which it has been trained, it's got to locate the source. Exactly. And we figured the handler, you know, can assist their dog if they understand how their target odor is, you know, is affected by the environmental conditions that they're working in. And by placing them in the most productive locations, they're going to be a lot more successful. So let's, let's kind of break it down once real quick. Um, in the environment, you're talking about temperature, the availability of odor, wind, right. everything, right? It, so 
Right. We look at the first things we look at is temperature, whether it's hot or cold. What does just hot or cold just by itself? What does that do to a target odor? So we, we look at that, and there's you know I've got videos and I got some 3D images sure. that that I'll have in the PowerPoint that kind of shows this. So we go from temperature, and then we go to current, air current, wind current, inside and out. How does current affect us? Yep. Strong, mild, and how do unusual when you start putting together temperature with current? How does that affect odor? Yeah. How does that make how much odor is available to you? Makes a big difference because we know that certain temperatures get really cold the molecules get extremely dense they don't move a lot yeah so we know the dog's going to be closer to source there's not going to be that nice plume of odor and then we look at ground you know buried odors we look at we actually there's a part in here that we you know i talk about the nose and how it actually works okay how do you compare that to an instructor than the signals that you send to make sure you send the right signals so we look at you know that type of stuff and as we go through it, you know, we're talking about available odor and how much is available and, and why is it available. Then we, um, you know, look at, uh, I look at how, how odors mask and how does that affect it and how does that affect, you know, what the dog sure. can and can't do. Then I look at container and non-containerized training aids. Sure. How does that affect the one? So just putting out, let's just say if you're doing a, a, a quick, quick uh, training and you put out a block of C4, you unwrap it and you sit on a, on a uh, you know, piece of paper, you know, and you put it in a locker and lay it down close the door with it. You've got, you've got, you know, pretty abundant of odor. Sure. It makes it pretty easy. So if you're doing a certification, you know, we always want to yeah. make sure we have abundance of odor available so we know the dog knows the odor and the handler can read it. But that's not operational. So if you look operationally, okay, now I've taken that odor with so I've got a lot of surface area. I know I've got available odor for the dog to hit. Now let's take that and let's put that odor, that block, into a bag and put it into like a backpack sure. and put that backpack in a locker. Yeah. All of a sudden, I've changed the dynamics. Yep. How does that work now? How much odor is available? Does your dog recognize that odor? Is there enough of a picture there for him to say, yeah, I still recognize that and, and I'll throw at least enough change for the handle to recognize it? Yeah maybe a final response or he just ignored because that's not what he's used to seeing. So, you know, that stuff's covered and why it makes a difference. Sure. And that's things we look at. So and let's, that's why. I, I want to go deeper on that, that exact thing. Cause I've, I've had a decent amount of experience doing stuff very, very similar to that. Your experience on that. So when that exact scenario, what's your experience when you actually don't just have the, the train aid sitting, you know, next to the vent in the locker, what, what are you seeing on those? Well, you'll see a lot of dogs, and that's where we, you know, you come into wanting to educate a handler, correct? Yes. Because the handlers, you know, a lot of times they go through courses. Of course, everything is there, so there's adequate amount of odor for the dog, yep. and they're going yes. through a basic basic course. And that's what it is. It's a basic yes. course. But there's usually quite a bit of available odor for the dog. Well, then you come into training or they come to a workshop where – you know, someone, myself from whomever is yeah. running a venue and you come through and you're pretty, pretty new handler. All of a sudden I put that type of scenario together, kind of mocking what maybe a real device would be hidden in or yeah. even narcotics, you know, cause most people aren't going to leave tons of, uh, yeah. you know, drugs just sitting out in the open. They're going to try to package them. They're going to try to mask them, but you'll do this in a, in a, in a venue and a, and a dog handler and a team will come through 
And the dog might show some subtle changes that, you know, I see or another trainer or master trainer might see because they know where the substance yeah. is at. Yeah. But the handler just walks through and doesn't see it. The dog doesn't give a final, doesn't stay with it and, and walks away. They say, yeah, there's nothing in there. And you start seeing, did you not see that subtle? Yep. Change behavior. They say, no, I didn't see that because they've never seen that. Yeah. Because they've never, and the dog hasn't seen that picture. And that's how I kind of describe the dog's nose, and I cover it in in the class. What he actually sees and how he sees his world. Of course, we know know he sees his world with his nose. And then he gets pictures in his mind of what something should look like. And all of a sudden, you know, it's not all there. That picture that he's used to seeing, there's pieces missing. Will he generalize that, that, yeah, that's still the same thing I'm looking for? Or will he just throw a slight change and leave it like that's not what i'm looking for i've not been paid on that yeah. so i said we have to teach the dogs to be able to generalize this because that's what they're going to see in operational deployments whether it's, you know for whatever discipline yeah. they're in things that are in operational deployments are not the same as we do in a basic class and that's why this class was put together because we wanted to educate handlers to say this is what you need to look at and i tell people all the time you know with the gps capabilities on our phone for weather you can check the weather conditions where you're at and it gives you a pretty decent idea of temperature wind wind direction you know humidity humidity plays a part in because humidity is moisture moisture can attract molecules and it's evaporated with the sun i said and it moves stuff around so you can get that right there so so some of this stuff that's you know you're going to be taught at the class will at least give Handlers a good basic foundation of what to look for, what conditions are there. I carry a puffer. You know, I use a wind indicator puffer. They got some real nice electronic ones now that produce smoke. I just use the old wind indicators for hunting, puff sure. powder. Yep. But I watch it. And I say when I'm setting out training aids for training, I'll puff the area I'm at because I want to see how the odor's moving there. And the reason I want to want to be is I want to see where the dog, I think the dog will hit it first and see how he'll trail back to source. I tell all handlers, carry this, because this little puffer, which doesn't take any room, don't cost you about two bucks, yeah. I said it can give you a pretty daggone good indication of wind direction and air currents inside of buildings, which a lot of people don't think about current in buildings. But I said, you know, so I'll cover that in class, and I'll bring this stuff out. I even have an infrared thermometer I carry in my pack, because I can click it and check temperatures in various parts of of the room or outdoors and see based on what I'm looking at on the temperature saying based on that, I'm saying this is the way the odor should go. Yep. And, and these are little things that, that are kind of just, you know, little things you can put in your, your toolbox that'll help you out in future reference. I've had people call me and tell me, Hey man, our dogs are walking this odor in this location. Okay. You think the odor's bad? You think it's a bad place? I don't know, man, all the yep. dogs are missing it. Well, we'll go there used a puffer, and all of a sudden, they had, they had the odor fairly high, you know, over yeah. five or six feet high. It's being pulled straight, straight up into up. the ceiling yep. out because they had an exhaust fan pulling yep. all the odor outside. Yep. I said, the odor's not dropping. It's all rising. It's going out the building. The dog, it's not available to the dog unless, he's, unless he can stand yeah. over six feet. And as they said, man, I just didn't realize that. Yeah. It's a little thing. So that's stuff that will be covered in a class. And that's why I'm really I'm really excited about this class for those reasons because while you know I think for you and I I think I think you're on the same page we've never trained together but I could tell we're on the same page that you know when I set out a training aid I have all that in my mind because I've just 
gone over it so many thousands of times that it's just kind of second nature. But then I find, probably as you do too, that a lot of handlers in these quick uh, courses don't really get that. They just get the dogs that, what I, how I refer to it as the dogs that if they're punched in the nose with the odor, they do really well. And then when you don't punch them in the nose with the odor, then they, they kind of hesitate because they aren't taught all of these different factors to think about and, and you know, kind of the problem solving is why they're not doing it. So that's why I'm really looking forward to the class. I think there's going to be a lot of people who will pick up a lot of good stuff out of it. Well, I, I, you know, I definitely hope so, and I really appreciate that. But, you know, and it's nothing to do with the vendors because the vendors are Absolutely. spending a, a certain amount of time printing the dogs Absolutely. on this one. Yeah. The and, you know, you look at administrators nowadays and with the budgets, restraints yep. they've got, they can't allow an officer probably to be gone for 10, 12, exactly. 14 weeks like we used yep. to do it 15, 20 years ago. Yep. They can't do that anymore. And it's all about getting an officer a piece of equipment that's going to be beneficial to, to the community and the department, but getting back as quickly as possible. Yep. But I'll tell you what, and, I'll tell you where, where I will put the responsibility though, is then handlers, you know, need to reach out to, to, you know, larger training groups in their area and go to some of these national events and stuff and do the things that they're not comfortable with, do the things their dogs well, don't do really well and work on it so if you know if they if they go through a school and they think it should be an easy search because there's a c4 and a locker and a backpack and their dog doesn't do it take that as wow i'm sure glad i saw it here and start getting better and challenge yourself as as you see probably what i see sometimes is you know maybe the the dual purpose bomb dog guy spends more time doing the patrol stuff because it's more fun and actually more fun and it's something they're going to probably utilize their dog a whole lot more Uh, than they would be on the detection side, which, like I said, you know, most, unless you're in a very, very, very busy yeah. uh, area with a lot of large venues, you know, you know, I mean, I guess probably most of your explosive detection dogs in a smaller town might only get five to ten call-outs a yep. year. Yeah. Uh, and then, but the patrol side, they'll get a lot more. Exactly. So, like, you're right, they will they will work on that a whole lot more. And I think some of that, some of that brings into complacency because, you know, now – they're only using their dog for five or ten yeah. deployments a year, probably yeah. less than once a month, maybe once every other month. Uh, so they don't take it as seriously because they think, man, you know, I've had you know a yeah. dozen calls in the last year and I haven't had found anything. And yeah. they're always the same thing. Okay, yeah, but you got to be on your toes because you know how that how that goes, Jeff. That one time you think it's not going to be serious, that's when the you know it hits a fan. And I tell you, that's why I think it's one of the harder disciplines to to handle a dog for because of all that. And when I meet a guy who's maybe like a, a dual purpose bomb dog, patrol dog handler, and the dog is dynamite in both disciplines, and then I talk to him and he's in that situation where he really doesn't get hardly any work on the bomb dog side, but is yet the bomb dog side of his dog is dynamite. It tells me that there's a, a passionate dog handler, you know, wants to be good at his craft and, and ready. Those are the, the people that, I mean, I'm always impressed with those because it, it's a, it's a hard thing to balance sometimes. And then, like you mentioned, there's time constraints with training and everything else. So it's a, it's a difficult thing, but it's, it's obviously, it's very important. Yes, it is. And I'm hoping, you know, people come, enjoy the class. And if they take one thing out of it, each sure. person takes something out of it. To me, it's, it's a plus and it's a positive. You know, I don't have any of these PhDs and I don't have any titles behind my name, like you know, doctors or yeah, scientists yeah. or professors. But I do have a lot of ground, hands-on experience exactly. throughout throughout the country, and I've seen a lot. And you know, of course, of course, like you, Jeff, you know, you've been around forever too. You know, we learn by our mistakes as well. Absolutely. But Absolutely. I'm just trying to pass on information and 
that would hopefully make it safer and sure. save someone's sure. life. And that's what Paul and I were thinking. We, we, we talked about this 12 years ago, I think it was. And I continue teaching it, and I keep continue adding on to it as I see things yeah. that I think could be better or something I think would be advantageous to a handler. I add that to it as well. Oh, yeah. But so, they'll, like I say, they'll see some 3D graphs, some some videos, some there's there's graphs, and we'll get on talking points and uh, and, and, and teach them all great. about you know yes. what wind does. And like I said, all the things we talked about now. Yeah, that's what that's what the class will cover. So hey, if they're interested and that uh, touches something they think they definitely need, definitely come out and, yeah. and uh, come. And looks like you're going to have a big crowd, and looks like there's going to be some fantastic instructors there. Yeah, I think, and, and we talked real quickly about the environmental stuff. Before we hang up, I want to talk real quickly. I, I imagine then after you go over your environmental stuff, then you have a training component as to, you know, so let's go back to the, the same one we've been talking about. The handler doesn't read the alert, and uh, then you tell them where it is. What's your training progression? How do you help that handler before he, he goes back to his, his home, home base? Well, what we'll do is a lot of times if, we, if the dog showed any type of change of behavior, what we'll do is we'll pay that dog on sniff sure. he's sniffing, pay him on that get him focused back hey this is something that i get paid on just like everything else sometimes we have to actually back up a step or two for that dog open up yeah. the locker maybe unzip the backpack put a little more over there so he gets a little bit better picture something that he has a better change on that the handler can see and then once he does that we bring him back through and we, then we start working back to the right. So, you know, anytime we're doing training like that, it's always in a progression. You know, if a dog hits it fine, if he does it, we just back up sure. and then go into the training mode and do what we need to do with, like I said, it's a pay on stiff, or we open the package up just a little bit more so the dog recognizes that picture, get it closer to the actual picture he's used to seeing, and then we just start progressing to the right a little bit by little bit. And then sooner or later, you know, it doesn't take you, you know, very many repetitions for yeah. a dog to actually get paid sure. and rewarded for a behavior, all of a sudden it's like, oh, I get this. That picture is a, even the same as this, even though I'm missing a, yep. a, you know, a page or two. Yeah. And that's what we do. That's how we look at it. And so when you're doing these, and I know you do them like the national seminars, so you have a lot of drug dog handlers, a lot of bomb dog handlers, and now probably guns and uh, um, arson, you, you name it. So lots of different detector dogs. My point on this question is, is that when you have somebody and they do that, if the handler's got a good attitude and the dog is selected for the work he's supposed to do, have you ever had any dog that when you start working them that, that they can't work over that hump? No, I've not. No, I have not. Yeah. Like I said, if they're, if they're selected properly and you have a handler that definitely wants to learn and is eager to get his dog in that position and he's taking what you've given him and he's like, yeah, I understand. Yep. I'll do that. Yeah. yeah. I'll keep doing it. No, because it's fairly easy exactly. to help a dog get to that point as you just, as you just talked about, yeah. you know, and, and I mean, people are out there selecting dogs better and better today. Yeah. You know, they're learning more and more how yeah. to procure dogs, what to look for. So that, that helps out the whole process. Cause like you just said, you know, the, the better you procure the dog for the discipline you want to do and He's like, you know, almost a superstar, and you got a very good handler that's paired up with him. You know, it's going to be a pretty easy task to get him to the to the point where you want him because the dog's going to learn very quickly. The handler is going to be able to see it. He's going to learn it as well with the team. So yeah, yeah. it does make it easier today you yep, know, than I it agree. did years ago when we didn't have these great dogs coming from overseas. And, you know, we didn't have all this education and technology we have yep. today to do research. Yep, I agree. And as long as you have a, a willing handler, and I think you probably would agree that, 
if the, if it doesn't work, it's usually on the other end of the leash. Yep, you you are right. Anyway, um, I think we gave a pretty good overview of your class, and I'm, I'm again, I'm sincerely excited about them. And uh, I'm usually a little bit busy during hits, but I always make sure I can uh, pop into a lot of different classes because I I learn just as much as everybody else. So when I'm there, I always uh, take a lot away from it. So uh, if you like listening to this uh, type of stuff and you're detection dog handler, you want to meet Rick in person. One of the things about HITS it's, uh, that I always stress is the networking. So Rick will be there for several days. Napwata's got a booth, so you can go by the booth and talk to him. You can see him in the evening when we're having some social hours. So there's plenty of time, not just in the class, to go around and meet all the instructors and pick their brains and, and do a lot of it of networking. So one of the big values of uh, HITS is just being in the, the whole environment, not just sitting in the classroom. So I'm looking forward to it, Rick. Uh, it's about a month away, so we'll be uh, together in Orlando. Um, if you want information on this, you're listening to this, go to hitscanine.net, and uh, all the information is on there. We've got plenty of space to register. There'll be uh, more than 1,000 handlers there and over 100 vendors and uh, lots of great instructors, including uh, uh, Rick. So, Rick, I appreciate the time uh, coming on today, and I'll be seeing you in just a few weeks. Yes, sir. I greatly appreciate the opportunity to come to your all's great conference and looking forward to it. Thanks again, Jeff. All right. Thank you. HITS Radio. This is the official HITS training and consulting podcast. We are America's law enforcement canine training resource. We're raising the training bar for police dogs everywhere by discussing the intricate details of the training techniques used by the experts. HITS Radio is merging the training world with the real world. You've been there. We've been there too.